What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is a return guest, Stephen Maycheck. Yeah, you got it. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, we teased this uh, topic a little bit on our last podcast, which was extremely uh, informative for me, uh, talking about muscle fiber typing and powerlifting, and I really enjoyed that. So the topic that we were able to just tease a little bit was the use of uh, psychedelics as potential ergogenic aids. So that's the episode today, and I'm really excited to talk about it, and uh, I feel like we're on the cutting edge, man. So um, if you will, kind of give us a little bit of the, uh, I guess, backstory about how you uh, came to be sort of, sort of the expert on this topic right now. <laughs> yeah, let's let's not extend ourselves too far, but I'll uh, I'll say how I came to be interested in it. So I think that uh, coming from California, especially the Bay Area, California, um, there's there's a lot of prevalence of of psychedelic drug use. Um, so I'd always talk to, to people and heard their experiences, and it's, it's a pretty prominent thing, so it's not something as vilified as it would be um, somewhere that's a little bit more conservative like Texas, for sure. Um, the really good thing about that is it, it gives you a, a really comprehensive viewpoint as to what all these people anecdotally are experiencing. So I kind of wanted to um, delve a little bit deeper into the, the empirical uh, body of literature on this. And I had a really cool opportunity when I was taking a public health class because I'm in a, in a doctoral program. That's one of the components of the PhD. So I decided for my public health class to study the decriminalization of psilocybin mushrooms. And mm. if uh, anyone's not familiar with that, there are, at least to my knowledge, three cities that have decriminalized, which is not the same thing as legalization, which drives me bonkers everyone, every time that people say that it's the same thing. But Denver, Colorado was the first, and then I believe it was Oakland, California, which actually was right next to SF State where I went, mm-hmm. um, and then Santa Cruz, California. If you've ever been to Santa Cruz, that makes a total, total sense. The beaches are great, you know. I mean, if you were to do anything extremely illegal, I mean, out on the beach, I don't think anyone would be there to really catch you. <laughs> be a good place to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's so. Yeah, this was this was just a paper where I uh, I was delving into a lot of the the research, and as we'll we'll come to talk about, there really isn't a whole lot. Um, there's been a lot of interest as of recent um, into a lot of different realms that people are now kind of just talking about. So for cognitive performance, which we'll definitely talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, but one aspect that really wasn't talked about that I really wanted to focus on was the application of psychedelics potentially for use in sport or as, as an ergogenic to try to elicit some type of performance benefit. Um, so I kind of wanted to delve in and see, is, is this possible? Because if people are doing it for cognitive performance, the kind of trend in supplements right now is that if it can boost your cognition, it can also boost your athletic performance and mm-hmm. vice versa. So people are taking things like caffeine to be better in athletics, but they're also taking it because they need to study or they need to improve their productivity, or sometimes when they're, you know, they're gaming, like professional gamers do a lot of stimulants nowadays. So I yeah. wonder there was an intersection there. Yeah, nootropics are, are 
huge within the past, oh, I don't know, maybe five years. I feel like they've really taken off, and they're just a whole category of supplements that um, there wasn't a whole lot of research and data on, but the, the industry was like, hey, this is the newest thing. Uh, and then, like you said, gaming was professional gaming was on the rise, and so a bunch of these companies just started snagging up all of these things that maybe work and maybe don't work and maybe help uh, elderly people with memory, and so they're like, hey, let's just throw a lot of that in this energy drink and uh, see what happens. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've seen pre-workout formulations that are literally the exact same formulation, but they'll just slap another label on it. So instead mm. of like, uh pump 2000 it's uh you know like gamer 2000 or something mm. like that mind pump, 2000. Mind pump. there you go <laughs> yeah mind pump. <laughs> i'm gonna steer clear from those um <laughs> but anyway so uh i've been i've been fairly interested in this you know in the topic of psychedelics i've i've never personally uh tried them but just the idea of them is very intriguing to me um i've read uh a book by michael pollan i believe it's called how to change your mind and he talks you know quite a bit about how really the the scientific community is starting to shift in and to really study these things because there's huge potential for um for helping people stopping smoking and for changing people's perspective about death when they're, you know, like terminal cancer patients. Like, it's really, really amazing stuff. Um, and kind of in the back of my mind, it's always been like, okay, if there's benefit there, and then I heard about, um, I heard about microdosing of, uh, a lot of people in Silicon Valley doing that just to improve efficiency and things like that, and which was also in your paper. Um, I was just like, at some point, it's it's gotta kind of drip into the sport performance realm if it works, if there's benefit. So if there's a cognitive benefit, then there's going to be, uh, you know, some sort of change on people's ability to like uh, mentally focus and apply themselves, you know, their their whole neurological system while they're training. So, um, so you you mentioned uh, before we started recording that uh, after after publishing this paper, uh, someone someone reached out to you because you were uh, you were the expert. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> Like I said, definitely not going to overextend and say that I'm the expert. And I was very clear when I was talking to this individual who was interviewing me that I'm not an expert. Um, but pretty recently, they actually came up with an episode on Real Sports with Brian Gumble on HBO about um, psychedelics for not necessarily sport performance, if you're watching this, but uh, the focus was on athletes that had previous injury and like, mm -hmm. like CTE, TBI, things of that nature. Um, previous addictions, you know, being addicted to, to opioids and other painkillers, um, and how they basically, because of, of just the nature of professional sports and beating you up over time, um, a lot of these people were contact sports professionals, so they were in football, they were in hockey, they were mm -hmm. in MMA, 
Um, and I think, you know, most people nowadays are pretty privy to what that can do to the brain, being a professional in those sports for years and years and years. Um, and so they were just talking about how those psychedelic experiences that they had tried were really, really formative um, in who they are now in terms of they had allowed them to kind of break that cycle, for lack of a better term, to get out of those um, those patterns of, of uh, depression, get out of those patterns of pain, mm-hmm. um, and relatively fast, too. That's the, the kind of really cool thing about the, the psychedelic experiences that you see not only in the, um, in the anecdote, but also in the research, is that a single dose can actually have lasting benefits that last for months and months and months, which is something that you absolutely do not see with conventional allopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is that I'm not trying to create a divide between conventional medicine and more like holistic psychedelic treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, of caveats in place and a lot of context in place and I think where they were trying to go was really uh, trying to be hyperbolic about the situation and really emphasize it. Um, but I don't think that any of the researchers would emphasize it that hard. I think that they would say that there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of considerations to be made. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of, of room for these things to be uh, supplementally used with one another. So maybe we don't use as much of, a, of an SSRI for depression we use a little bit less, and we also use uh, psychedelic therapy, um, or maybe in the future we'll talk about microdosing. Maybe you can employ microdosing as, as kind of a, a step in the right direction, and mm-hmm. that can help make you a little bit more amenable to, to therapy in the future. Nice. Awesome. So before we go any further, I'm just going to hold up your paper here, but uh, can you talk uh, just a little bit about the paper itself? Uh, with regards to like the uh, the title for those who sure. who aren't watching who are just listening, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, yeah, we'll kind of we'll dive into it. Yeah, well, the title uh, psychedelics overlook clinical tools with uh, with unexplored ergogenic potential. Um, I mean, they are overlooked clinical tools because I think up until recently, um, just when we go into the history of psychedelics a little bit, they had definitely been neglected over time. I think shoving something in the Schedule One category of controlled substances would definitely uh, kind of mask some of the potential benefits or, or at least uh, curtail some of those, those major benefits. So a lot of research really hasn't been done until about the last de- decade on it. And a lot of the stuff that was initially done was kind of brushed under the rug. Um, so the, the ergogenic component of it, ergogenic basically just meaning listing some type of performance enhancement um, the idea of the paper was to kind of give a brief overview of, of the history of psychedelics and then talk about um, microdosing practice uh, and then kind of intertwine those two things together, talking about how the combination of microdosing practice and or uh, larger psychedelic doses could actually be beneficial for athletes in a lot of different contexts, not just pain management, not just um, attenuating depression that they probably have accumulated through the continuous, you know, TBIs and whatnot that they have accumulated, but also actually benefiting their performance. Um, and there really wasn't much out there for me to pull from. Mm-hmm. There are a few articles that were actually written. There's one article in particular that was written by uh, Maps. I don't know if you've ever heard of Maps before. It's mm-hmm. the yeah, yeah. yes. Oh God, what does that stand for? The multidisciplinary 
I don't I, association for um, psychedelic substances, maybe something like that. But MAPS is basically this this huge organization that's been doing a lot of really good um, advocating for psychedelic substances for um, for medical purposes, for for uh, clinical purposes. So they've they've made leaps and bounds in terms of being able to allow these things to to be used, not just your classical psychedelics, but also things like MDMA. Um, so the idea overall, I kind of got off track a little bit, was basically just to, to try to hone in all of those things together. Um, because, I mean, this was published in a nutrition and exercise journal. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people were kind of hesitant to, to see psychedelics and then jump directly into sports performance. So the idea was to kind of demonstrate, okay, so this is the history of them. This is what they've shown so far. Super, super beneficial, um, at least in the context that we're looking at them in. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we can actually use these, um, at least maybe in a micro dosing scenario, to be able to to get some performance benefit. Yeah, the uh, the connection, or the at least the potential connection to mTOR, I think is is really interesting, and I I can't wait to get get to that. But uh, before we jump out uh, to that point, um, is is your paper here is this available for anyone to read is it open access and and if so where can people find it so that they yeah. can also read yeah so it is totally open access um it's a relatively new journal so it's only been in, out for a couple of years uh, the article was only published in 2019 so um the best way to to find that article um is probably just to google psychedelics and then my last name and it should pop up so psychedelics and then maychek m-a-c-h-e-k and it should pop up Sweet. Um, if you can't find it there, I mean, I'm on ResearchGate too, but that's probably something I'll just mention towards the end. Gotcha. Awesome. So let's uh, let's kind of start out at the beginning. For those who uh, have either no idea or maybe just partially some idea, what are psychedelics? Yeah. So that's uh, that's definitely um, a good question. If if no one's experienced them before, so they're they're serotonin analogs, which means that they're very structurally similar to the neurotransmitter serotonin. Um, so they, they bind to the same receptors. They're, they either partially or fully agonize a specific serotonin receptor, which is the um, serotonin 2A or the 5-HT2A receptor. Um, when we talk about psychedelics, usually I think people are aware of the major ones. So LSD, lysergic acid uh, diethylamide, um, psilocybin mushrooms or magic mushrooms, uh, people might be a little shrooms. bit shrooms. There you go. Yeah, shrooms. <laughs> um, some people might know about peyote or mescaline is the the chemical compound. Um, there's also some other ones. If if you've ever seen Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, I highly recommend that show. It's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, he goes into all of the different uh, analogs there. So like five meo DMT that you can basically get from. Um, kind of condensing and, and drying the secretions from the Bufalvarius frog. Uh, you That's can go. Weird, man. It is really weird. If if you ever, if anyone ever watches that episode, I had no idea how they actually extracted <laughs> the uh, the toad venom. But basically, what they do is they just take that toad um, and they do this in the most respectful way possible. So I don't think there's just people going out there like crushing toads in between their hands, but. They'll just apply a little bit of stress to the toad inside of a glass container. It'll squirt its stuff out, and they'll dry it out and scrape it up. Mm. Um, and then you just condense it, and, and I mean, 
I, I don't know how to say this any other way. They smoke it in a crack pipe. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, how nice. Yeah. So, uh, um, people have hallucinations. That's, I mean, that's, that's what I think people, people generally understand about psychedelics. They're hallucinogenic substances. If you consume enough of them, you will have visual distortions. Um, people talk about this concept of ego death where they actually lose perception of their self. Mm-hmm. If you take enough of a, of a psychedelic, some of them are a little bit more potent in dose than others. So something like DMT, which Joe Rogan really popularized and a lot of people are a lot more aware of nowadays. Um, people will go to South America to drink ayahuasca, which uh, historically has been used by South American cultures for a really long time. Um, but you know, that, that is probably like the ultimate psychedelic experience that you can have without taking just like a crap ton of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is, it is DMT. It has a, a little bit more of a, of a pack to it than the other ones. Um, and you often hear a lot of people undergoing visual hallucinations, um, different perceptions in their body. So, um, uh, visual distortions, all the, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, every time Rogan talks about it, he, he mentions it's like getting blasted off into space. Like he's just like one second you're here and then you're like somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's fun to hear him talk about that stuff because DMT is one of those things. Like uh, I, I would be interested in potentially doing that in the future once, you know, the, uh, there's a little bit more uh, information um, available on, on how to safely do all that stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the few, you never know in the next 10 years, it actually might be completely decriminalized and you wouldn't have to go all the way to South America to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just sounds like it would basically be like a, uh, a very, uh, mind altering experience, very, very, uh, impactful experience in, in your life. Yeah. I remember reading, I think it was, uh, out of the Mayo clinic, the studies where they were looking at smoking cessation and then also the studies looking at, um, terminal cancer patients just kind of having a much better view on on their uh, unavoidable, very, very soon, you know, death. And yeah. uh, I, I believe the majority of them said, like, just after a single dose of, I think they were using psilocybin, um, one of the most profound experiences of their life. Yeah. Like, like the you know top top three or top five you know like getting married having kids <laughs> and then this trip right yeah. so I, I think uh, you know I, it it's so interesting because it can be so impactful I think we've we've got to uh, to you know the science community needs to take this seriously and not stop avoiding it just because the you know because it's taboo right. um so you know what's really interesting sorry to cut you off is no, uh, it's good. they they have a, a a recent survey study of people that were microdosing and I, i'm i'm kind of jumping forward here but microdosing you're basically taking a tenth of the dose so it's a non it's a sub threshold non hallucinogenic dose and these people were still reporting i think i don't remember the exact percentage but it was uh i think somewhere between like 10%, maybe a little bit lower than that, um, we're actually saying that it was still one of the most prominent experiences they've ever had in their life. 
Wow. And I think that lends to the fact that it's not just the visuals that you're getting. It's not just like being blasted out of your body. But I think there's mechanistically something that's going on that's rewiring some of those neural networks in your brain. That's mm-hmm. um, kind of just shaping your mind and your perception a little bit differently. I think when we experience really big changes, um, things that are really shocking to us, that's those are the, the uh, situations or the memories that are, are the most uh, kind of solidified. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely agree. When you're uh, when you're no longer just thinking about yourself, like right. when when your ego is stripped away, and then you're like, you know, able to look at you know situations in life where you're not being so selfish. Like yeah. that can that can change you. I think so. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the history of psychedelic use um, and. Uh, maybe a little bit about why it's been under-researched, why it's so stigmatized. Sure. Um, So as I I had kind of alluded to before, psychedelics have been used for centuries. So you can date it back all the way to um, South American tribes using it, back to, um, I think it was the Aztecs who actually used it. Um, they, They have historical reports of them consuming mushrooms that would cause uh, kind of uh, illusions, uh, visual illusions, things of that nature. Um, there's reports of Greek athletes actually consuming psilocybin mushrooms before they actually went into, um, you know, started getting into the arena or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think a lot of the Native American tribes, certain Native American tribes have a pretty rich history of consuming peyote cactus for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then, and I guess uh, where we kind of should start in terms of the research is is when uh, Albert Hoffman discovered LSD, uh, kind of serendipitously in his lab in the the mid to early um, 1900s. And at first, like he was writing his experiences, and and I would definitely recommend the show uh, Explained on Netflix. There's a specific episode where it talks about a lot. It goes into a, a really rich history and detail about psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they talk about his experience a little bit. He was writing down things, because he, he actually ended up taking um, probably like five times a normal hallucinogenic dose that, that people would take nowadays. Mm-hmm. And he was describing all of the, the nausea and, and distress that he was experiencing. Um, but beyond that point, he understood that it was a really powerful drug. And he understood that there could possibly be some clinical application to it. So there was a lot of research as he tried to, to kind of get this information out, <laughs> disseminated out, and allow some of that research to be done in the proper settings, giving it to, to other researchers. Um, but around the time that uh, the Vietnam War happened, um, obviously there were some anti-war sentiments, and uh, also there was the uh, the kind of psychedelic age of the 60s where People got really into recreational drugs, not just psychedelics, but also weed, um, other things as well. But uh, when Nixon called out that that drugs were public enemy number one, mm. and then decided to, to pass the Controlled Substance Act in, in 71, that's when it put just like a massive, um, massive stop on all the psychedelic research that was taking place. So a lot of these people that were advocating for it in the media made complete 180s. They went from saying that these things are the the drugs of the future to saying that these things are literally killing our minds. They're literally just destroying our brain cells. Um, And so, so much funding went into 
trying to stop the use of, of all these drugs, not just the addictive ones that I think people are really familiar with. Like, obviously, methamphetamine and heroin are really addictive substances. Mm -hmm. um, but when you start talking about lumping in psilocybin, lumping in LSD and all the other psychedelic compounds in with all the others, that's when we start to get a little bit more, more myopic. Um, but that's also why literally there hasn't been any research on that stuff in, you know, since, since, uh, the fifties, sixties time. Mm -hmm. It just kind of shut down. And then for yeah. what, 40, 50 years, it was just, yeah, nothing. it really wasn't until, um, I'm not entirely sure of the, the major sequence of events, but I definitely credit a lot of it to, to like Rick Doblin and, and the MAPS Foundation for really trying to advocate for the use of things like MDMA and psilocybin and LSD for, um, for therapy, mm -hmm. for clinical, clinical purposes. Yeah, I think, uh, I believe they were trying to follow kind of the, a similar path that was laid out for uh, the use of marijuana as as medicine and yeah. i think they they were kind of using that you know this path is pretty much already paved we could reinvent the wheel or we could just so i don't know if that's 100 percent sure accurate but i believe that uh michael pollan mentioned something like that in uh in his book so um once research started up like uh you mentioned it was kind of more on the on the treatment side on the medical side let's say so mm -hmm. what were the specific areas uh where uh, psychedelics were being researched yeah um so i how as i kind of talked about before as supplemental therapies for um things like depression so used in conjunction with ssris or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, there's also application in ptsd um, there's some, some really interesting research where they actually used mice and they conditioned them to be afraid. They basically used like normal conditioning methods, uh, to make them associate a noise with an electric shock on their feet. Mm -hmm. And so what they did is they, um, used, uh, I think it was DMT at that point, And they noticed that, um, basically a few days after the, the treatment, that when they used DMT, the mice that were given that um, versus the control mice actually didn't uh, have the same kind of freezing reaction as the uh, as the control mice when they exposed wow. to that sound. So it was really interesting. They call that fear extinction. Hmm. Um, so it's a really cool thing. Um, other aspects, addiction. I think you talked about alcoholism and tobacco use. Um, mm -hmm. Some other ones. OCD is another really big one too. Obsessive compulsive hmm. disorder. So what they're they're kind of finding out is that a lot of these different psychological problems are rooted in um, serotonin receptors. So uh, an abundance of serotonin receptors, either because people are having a reduction or too much of that particular neurotransmitter. There are probably many other different things that kind of conflate with that, but they found that people are much more amenable to the the different therapies. Um, when they administer these compounds like psychedelics that are able to, basically the, the term that they use is tachyphylaxis. So they administer these psychedelic compounds or analogs of, of such, and it actually takes that receptor number and massively downregulates it, hmm. uh, which is what you'll see with psychedelics. So if you were to take, this is what actually really differentiates psychedelics from other really, really addictive drugs. So if you were to take 
um, psychedelics today and you took it again tomorrow, the effectiveness would be cut in half. You take hmm. it again the next day, it's cut down to a quarter of that original effectiveness. And hmm. that's just kind of uh, inherent to that, that phenomenon of tachyphylaxis, right? So if the, the actual compound isn't able to bind to its receptor, it's not going to be able to elicit those same effects. And so it's, it's doing that, um, or that's the, the kind of mean, the mechanism by which it's, it's mediating that effect on a lot of these different addictive or psychological issues. Gotcha. That's really interesting. And that, that's one of those things that uh, I, I also find very interesting is you don't hear about, you know, uh, like you hear about people who, who use marijuana like on a daily basis, like, like all the time. Like I knew a yeah. guy. He'd wake up, roll out of bed, boom, he was on it, and then intermittently throughout the day, every couple hours, like he, like that's just how he lived his life, and he didn't want to do anything different. You don't hear about people doing that with LSD or with mushrooms. Like it's usually like the one person that I know who really enjoys mushrooms. Like maybe once a year or once every six months he's he's like it's afterwards it takes me about six months to process what just happened to me like yeah <laughs> i uh i always like to tell people that there's there's like a spectrum of drugs so you have stimulants you have depressants and then i like to lump just kind of um psychedelics in, in the middle there so stimulants are going to bring you up this is your continuum right so stimulants are going to bring you up depressants are going to bring you down psychedelics mm -hmm. don't really do either of those, they kind of shift you just to a different plane, right? So it's not hmm. like you're being brought up or being brought down. It's not mm -hmm. numbing you. It's enhancing you to a certain degree, but it's not, I would say that it's not uh, enhancing you the same way that like, you taking caffeine or taking methamphetamine or, you know, anything that's, that's going to be a, a, a massive stimulant in that regard. It's definitely mm -hmm. different. And I think that because it's it's so different and these experiences are so profound that people just have more respect for the compound in itself, for mm -hmm. the compounds in themselves. Um, yeah, those those uh, those experiences can be really really taxing. I mean, when you're taking things like caffeine and you're taking things like depressants, um, alcohol, you know, things of that nature, um, you're just kind of numbing yourself a little bit. You're kind of blunting your experiences a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, with psychedelics, it's definitely just a, a shift in your perception that, that I think that um, just kind of inherently demands a little bit more respect. Yeah, I think it's the difference between, uh, like you said, like caffeine or alcohol. Like the, the five senses that we have available, you know, at our disposal, like those are, are kind of shutting some of those off maybe. Or not necessarily shutting them off, but definitely changing our sensitivity to those five senses. And I, uh, the way that people talk about psychedelics, it's like you gain additional senses. Like yeah. you're, you're not numbing any of the senses you have. You're, you're, it's like, we can't, we can't fully process all of what we, reality is all the time. If we had access to all of these senses, we'd, you know, we'd go crazy and kill ourselves. But it's like, you know, these little bits of time where you can access that. It's like it, it, you know, it shows you that we really don't know completely, you know, what reality fully is. Yeah. So.
Yeah, there, um, there are some people that, that kind of equate psychedelic use to like a, a crash course in meditation. So the <laughs> ultimate goal in, in meditation is to really introspectively look within oneself, but it's to ma mainly focus on what's actually going on versus what's going on in my head. What are the things that I have to do? What are the things that I have, I have done um, and everything that I need to do forward from there? It's not about that. It's about living in that specific moment. And masters of meditation, which I am definitely not, um, we'll talk about how being really introspective can can kind of tune you into senses like you were saying that you weren't really familiar with, or at least um, kind of give you perceptions that you wouldn't otherwise be able to access. And so mm -hmm. different books, too, have actually talked about that. Um, Albert, Albert Hoffman, I can't remember the name, but there's a book called Paradise, I think. Or Island, it's Island. Um, yeah, by Aldous Huxley. My bad, I mm. messed that up. Mm. But uh, that book actually, it was it was mainly about a um, like an alternate kind of island where everything is utopia. Um, mm. But one of the ways that they actually reached that utopia was they would often imbibe this. It, it was essentially magic mushroom drink. Um, and it kind of gave them the perceptions to to work a little bit better with one another and interact a little bit more meaningfully with one another at the same time. So it was it was a really interesting book. Nice. Um, I completely forgot what I was going to just ask you. Um, My bad. I probably interrupted you. No, it's all good. If I think of it, I'll I'll interrupt sure. you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. I, I need to be interrupted. So uh, let's. Let's circle back to the differences between, like, a full dose and microdosing, and and what are the uh, what are the benefits? What are the trade offs between the two? Um, yeah, roll. Yeah, um, I think I think the first thing I should mention is there really isn't a whole lot of of evidence on microdosing. Um, there's definitely not a lot of research as a whole, but I would definitely say the smaller percentage of the research that exists is in microdosing. Uh, I think that's where we're, we're definitely headed in the future. Um, but a lot of that interest was, was kind of garnered through the, the kind of increases in productivity that a lot of people in, in uh, Silicon Valley kind of tout. Mm. Um, so a lot of them are using it for better concentration, um, so the focus involved with that, more creativity, um, problem solving, different different mood enhancements. These people are touting all those different things. And I think especially in Silicon Valley where you have these like uh, coding puzzles, for lack of a better term, that are in front of you or you constantly are commissioned to come up with like a new way to pose the, the same type of, of platform over and over again, it, it kind of requires you to kind of think outside the box mm -hmm. um, and especially when when you're doing um, you're working in that kind of stressful environment it might actually be really difficult to try to put yourself outside of, of the, the typical box yeah um, so so that's the the first thing I wanted to mention but um, a microdose is, is a sub threshold dose so it doesn't elicit a, a, a hallucinogenic hallucinogenic effect so it's typically about a tenth of a normal dose um, so very, very small amounts. Um, and uh, I guess the, the main benefit of that is that you don't have uh, the risk for the, the kind of bad trips that a lot of people talk about. Mm -hmm. So bad trips, people get, um, if they take too much or they're not 
accustomed to what a psychedelic experience is going to be like, or if there's sometimes people have um, psychological issues and they'll actually go into a psychedelic experience and that'll completely exacerbate it. Um, but they'll have major paranoia. Um, they'll have some actual literature is actually described like this feeling that there's this greater malicious evil that's kind of like bearing down on them, which is mm -hmm. frightening, uh, especially because you're hearing about that in like a scientific paper, right? You know, when there's no real good way to explain that. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the main benefits. And it seems, at least preliminarily, that people are experiencing some of this, the same benefits. Uh, so re reducing incidences of addiction, um, when it, whether that be tobacco or alcohol, uh, whether that be uh, reductions in obsessive compulsive behavior, um, the PTSD that I was talking about, a lot of that stuff has, has demonstrated that these sub-threshold doses can actually achieve similar effects, hmm. um, which if you don't need to undergo the, the psychedelic experience, I think for a lot of people that are kind of hesitant, I think it's probably best for them to, to go ahead and, and use a, a dose that's not going to alter their perceptions in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and if we're talking about sports specifically, I think that there's definitely an application there because you don't want a, a full psychedelic dose, which is going to alter your reaction times and your perceptions, make you a little bit more, um, at least outwardly lethargic. So not, not like you may not feel lethargic, but your your body's not moving the same way that you would you would want it to, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's not to say that there isn't a benefit to the the full um, threshold doses of psychedelics where you actually do get that hallucination, because that hallucination itself has been touted as being one of the main components that make people bit a little bit more amenable. We talked about how the uh, the experience is so profound for people, so I think that that kind of being blasted into something else, having this like massive change shift in, in your perception um, kind of allows you to, to be a little bit more suggestible to some of the, um, the therapy that you could get. So they'll, they'll have therapists on research teams that are actually guiding you through these experiences. It's not like hmm. your typical drug experience where you take the painkiller, you go away, you're expected that it's expected that your pain is going to go away the next time that you go to the doctor. Whereas right. with psychedelic, it's not like a, a switch. It's not like you take the drug and they expect everything to just be fixed automatically. You have people there to kind of work through the issue with you. Um, and because it's that full psychedelic experience is really breaking apart some of those. So what it's actually doing is it's reducing blood flow specific areas of the brain. And by doing so, it's creating uh, communication between different areas of the brain that normally wouldn't. So it's hmm. forming new neural networks. And while that formation is going on, that's a great time to be able to kind of sculpt that with the, the suggestions of, of uh, people like therapists that might mm -hmm. be able to, to kind of guide you in the right direction. And that way it doesn't just reform back to, to what you've been doing. It's kind of like, um, like mobility work, right? You mm. can stretch all you want. You can do the thing that kind of undoes whatever negative neural tone you have. But unless you introduce good movement into it, it's not going to solidify. Right. That's probably gotcha. the, the best example I could think of. Yeah, yeah. For, the, uh, for the viewers and listeners, that should make a lot of sense. Um, just because, you know. That'll be the one thing I say today that makes sense. <laughs> 
nice. But no, that's a that's a really good analogy. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah, there's you you can apply uh, a certain type of stimulus all you want, but un, until you're until you're applying, like you said, good movement, quality movement, until you're correcting things, uh, you're not really giving the body any reason to maintain this this access to these new ranges of motion, let's say. Right, so, exactly. Um, so do you think it's because of uh, microdosing that there's this potential shift towards ergogenic benefit? Like, in other words, um, uh, like, I, I personally didn't think that there would be too much of a benefit for an athlete to, to take a full dose, you know, yeah. around the training window, around the competition window, because like you said, you're probably not going to uh, look alive out there, <laughs> as they say in sports, right? So, yeah. Um, so do you think, aside from like the acute performance benefit, like maybe the, the full dose can, you know, within, within the course of, you know, uh, um, a macro cycle, maybe we can get some change or post post injury, something like that. Like, let's kind of set that aside. The micro dosing. Do you think that it was because of all this anecdotal evidence, let's say, um, that it, that it was improving, creativity that it was improving work efficiency and work output and those things that uh it's kind of shifting and bleeding over into sports like i know uh rogan mentions that a lot of mma uh and brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes are using it because they feel um they feel creative when they're moving they feel you know like they can work harder. They feel like time slows down. They feel like they're kind of in in the zone, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think it's because of the microdosing that it's becoming anecdotally more popular in sports? I I think I think that's a hard question to answer. Um I think that microdosing is definitely it's it's definitely a uh, a lower buy-in for a lot of people. Um, especially in Silicon Valley, where I think people are still a little bit hesitant to to do that the full uh, the full psychedelic dose. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that people have not done full psychedelic doses and done really well in in terms of performance. I mean, um, historically speaking, what Doc Ellis threw a um, a no hitter, mm-hmm. uh, which is I mean amazing in in the sport of baseball. So mm-hmm. and he did that under the influence of a full dose. I think I read the story and he thought that. He was just going to be benched the entire time. And uh, when they called him up, he was like, well, here we go. Uh, half the time he couldn't, he, he said that he couldn't perceive uh, where he was throwing some of that time. But No way. Yeah, it's it's crazy to hear about that. But um, And he was on really, LSD, right? Yeah, he was on LSD, um, which I think is absolutely bonkers. Um but there's this really good article. I actually have it printed out. It was a MAPS article. It's uh, Psychedelics and Extreme Sport. Mm. So they talk about how these kind of like clandestine sportsmen are going out there um, into, they're, they're surfing on full doses of LSD. They're, they're climbing mountains on full doses of LSD, um, which 
I mean, they're not necessarily going out there and competing or anything like that, but there, there could be some benefit to going out there and just kind of experiencing the, the environments in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but they also talk about how they use these uh, psycholytic dosages, which are basically microdosing doses, um, to, to kind of take advantage of the benefits that, that psychedelics offer. So um, we haven't really talked about it yet, but there's benefits related to fatigue. So a lot of these people feel like they uh, are more in the zone. They're more concentrated. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is because it's reducing blood flow to this area called the default mode network, which is comprised of these three different brain regions, which I probably couldn't name if you asked me to name them <laughs> right now. Um, but those brain regions are responsible for things like... Um, social attributions and ruminating thoughts so you're not thinking so much on you know like oh crap am i going to be able to to climb this mountain like what happens if i fall things like that or like i previously i haven't been able to climb this mountain or i haven't been able to um to pitch a no hitter right Mm -hmm. and you start thinking about or you're not thinking at all you're just in the zone you're in Mm -hmm. your flow state right and i think that flow state is basically just like what people talk about in a non-athletic environment when they're you know, like playing the piano or they're at work, they're writing, things like that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's application for both, definitely. Um, I think it kind of is up to the individual. I definitely wouldn't recommend that someone go and try to, you know, compete uh, with, you know, where their their profession is on the line on a full mm-hmm. dose of, of psychedelics. But I definitely think that they could on a, on a sub-threshold dose. Um, but overall, I mean, that's up to how you perceive that. So if you end up actually taking it because obviously it's been done with doc ellis right so it's possible yeah that's very interesting um so let's uh let's talk a little bit about the uh potential effects of psychedelics on uh increases in non-adipose tissue and how that relates to mTOR and and uh if you will give us the uh cliff's notes version of like what is mTOR how does that relate to muscle protein synthesis, and sure. how how does that relate to sport performance? Yeah, so uh, so mTOR is is kind of like your master regulator of protein synthesis. Um, a lot of things can affect mTOR. Uh, muscle contractions can affect mTOR. Um, I think a lot of people are aware that protein in- ingestion can affect mTOR. Basically, all that mTOR means is we increase muscle protein synthesis. Hopefully, that means that that can be translated into greater muscle mass. Um, so as you kind of alluded, alluded to, there was a study that actually showed that administration of psychedelics caused a non-adipose gain in, uh, in weight for, for mice. So this was, this was in mice and a lot of the, the kind of cellular mechanisms, uh, that we can tie back to performance or at least muscle gain are either in mice or they're in, um, in vitro studies. So in cell culture studies. So there's nothing in humans as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but the there is rationale for the mechanisms so um it's been shown that skeletal muscle has these same receptors that um uh that the the psychedelic compounds bind to that 5-ht2a receptor Mm -hmm. and they've seen that the binding of of these compounds to that receptor or serotonin to that receptor can actually increase pathways like the mTOR pathway can increase pathways like the MAP kinase pathways, so related to cellular proliferation and differentiation and cell migration, all that stuff. 
Um, even increases in PGC1-alpha, so especially for individuals that are interested in anaerobic endeavors, I mean, we can see increases in mitochondrial biogenesis, which means that our oxidative capacity could potentially go up. Um, mm -hmm. So being able to, to say that we see these things in cells is, is one thing. Um, it still needs to be shown whether these different changes can be elicited in, a, in an in vivo environment within a living creature. Um, it's kind of I mean, a stretch for me to say that, you know, because that, that those mice gained weight that was non-adipose tissue, maybe it was the mTOR that was increasing their muscle mass alongside the, the ERK-1-2 pathway. Um, I think that's kind of a stretch, but I think that there is a, a mechanistic basis to say that. Uh, where like normally those pathways, the, the reason that those pathways are normally upregulated from the, the, the binding of these compounds to that receptor is because those receptors are also massively found in the brain. So mm -hmm. those are, that's what's responsible for the neurogenesis that's happening, right? The growth of all of those, those neural cells. Mm -hmm. um, so all those pathways are really, really important there, probably much more profound there. But that doesn't mean that they, they can't have an influence uh, mechanistically on skeletal muscle, mechanistically on cardiac tissue. Mm -hmm. um, having extra mitochondria in your, in your heart probably doesn't hurt for aerobic endeavors. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I think that there is there's reason to believe that there it could be something there, especially if it's also potentiating your cognition and allowing you to train more effectively. I think that there's probably a, an effect very similar to like a, a creatine kind of effect where it can improve your cognition. It can also mechanistically improve the bioenergetics of skeletal muscle. Those two things together probably compound to create a better training stimulus um, not just within, but also from the external environment. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody can start researching that right now. Right. So I would it, love to be that person, man. <laughs> I, the, uh, when I, when I had that interview, I, I kept saying like, you know, I'm not opposed to doing that research. It's just, I can't even imagine how many hurdles there are to, to being the person that, starts that research. I mean, I, I, I talked about it before, but when you do psychedelic research, it's not just like, you wouldn't just be able to come into the lab and then mm -hmm. we give you small amounts of magic mushrooms or LSD. Mm -hmm. You need sufficient screening to make sure that you don't have any, any pre-existing contraindications when it comes to your psychology. Right. Um, you need to make sure that, the, if, that there's uh, someone that is either certified or licensed to be able to guide you through some of the the psychiatric issues that, that might exist, you know, mm -hmm. if you do have a, an adverse effect, like you need to be able to be calmed down from that. You need to be um, appropriately instructed on, on what the compound can do before you go ahead and ingest that. It's not the same thing as a, as a supplement. Yeah. I'm sure the, like you said, the, the hurdles there, I'm sure just legally there's a ton of hoops you got to jump through, but then uh, for safety reasons and, and, yeah, there's there's a whole lot of uh, I's you got to dot and T's you yeah. got to cross, and you definitely got to. Yeah, I'm sure it's not cheap, uh, but definitely I, not. I think there's there's a ton of questions there that we just don't have answers to yet, and I think it's worth trying to get those answers. I so. think so too. Like I said, if uh, you know, like Rick. Rick Doblin is listening to this and he wants to, you know, grab me and have me start my own lab somewhere. I'm not opposed to it. 
Because right now there's only like a handful of researchers. You know, whenever you get really, really deep into a certain topic, there's always the, the researchers over and over again that you keep reading because it's the same labs. Yeah. For this, it's like uh, Roland Griffiths out of, um, out of John Hopkins and then uh, Cal Hart Harris out of the UK. So those are the two main ones that usually come to mind. I'm sure there's plenty of others, but those are the two that Some I also see. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really cool opportunities, and you know they're they're kind of pioneering um, that area right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've kind of talked specifically about performance and and the ergogenic potential there. So let's shift into let's say uh, somebody's got an injury or somebody is is coming back from surgery, something along those lines. Where yeah. Where do psychedelics fit into a uh, potential benefit there? Yeah. So I think the, the main benefit would be either um, kind of working supplementary and with, to supplement existing, um, existing therapies. So I think most people that are listening to the podcast are going to have some idea of the contraindications of, of NSAID use. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the, uh, the, the, the kind of, Anti-inflammatory aspects can also reduce some of the the adaptations that can occur um, based on exercise. So I think that um, if we can administer things like low dose psychedelics in um, in microdoses and have it accomplish a lot of these um, kind of pain or analgesic like effects, mm-hmm. we can refrain from using some of those things uh, as frequently as we definitely do. Because I know a lot of people are very readily prescribe some of these NSAIDs in, in mm-hmm. relatively high doses at the same time. Um, even if that means that you can just cut NSAID use in half, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a, a huge avenue for uh, kind of curbing opiate addiction, which I, I know you talked about earlier, that guy on the Joe Rogan podcast who said that opiate addiction isn't a thing. Um, I'm going <laughs> to claim that it is a thing. Uh, I'm not. That's definitely not my area of research, but I, I'm I'm pretty certain that it exists to a pretty high extent. I think it's a thing. Yeah, we're gonna say it's a thing. Uh, yeah, and that I could guy def- was uh, Dr. Carl Hart, who uh, who studies uh, drugs, I believe. And maybe maybe I was strawmanning that position a little bit, but it, I because I haven't listened to the whole episode. But uh, he seems seemed pretty clear that he was like, eh, this is definitely not what the media is portraying it to be right now. So yeah, their narratives might be a little hyperbolic on on Joe Rogan too. So um, <laughs> <laughs> agreed. Yeah. So you know, I, I I definitely don't think I need to um, try to deny the existence of the the opiate epidemic. So uh, I definitely think that that psychedelics could be used as a means to curb opiate addiction, not mm-hmm. only as a means as an, an alternative or supplementary therapy, but also because we know that psychedelics work to attenuate uh, addiction in itself. So I think that um, not only mechanistically, but anecdotally, we've seen a lot of, of scenarios. So not just in the research, but um, without that recent Bryant Gumble Real Sports episode, there were tons of, of anecdotes on that show a lot of these people, they had CTE, they had um, continuous injuries over and over again that just basically threw them into a rut. And then psychedelics were able to, at least in large part, rescue a lot of, of, uh, of their sanity and a, a lot of their, their previous mental state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, that is uh, 
that's definitely nothing to, to, to kind of take for granted. For sure. Yeah, that's definitely a useful tool because so many, like injury can just be the most demoralizing thing for an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, oh, I forgot to mention too. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you off. Go ahead. But the, the whole PTSD thing too, right? So if mm-hmm. you have injury, especially in like a rehab scenario, um, you get someone that, that tore their ACL or someone that, um, you know, like massively strained their pec or something like that, they're going to be a little bit hesitant to go directly back into the exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have some of these effects that we've demonstrated in rodents, the fear extinction type mm-hmm. of, of outcomes, I think that a reduction in pain, um, whatever is going on neurologically to actually kind of reduce the, the incidence of, of that, um, those PTSD-like symptoms, the fear of, of re-injuring yourself or the fear of, of what has happened previously probably has a lot to do with that reduction in blood to the, the default mode network and those ruminating thoughts. Mm-hmm. I think that that's going to work uh, beautifully to complement one another to be able to make sure that you can get back into sport. For sure, man. Like that, as as a practitioner who works with a lot of post-injury uh, athletes uh, coming back, you know, they've had surgery, they've been to physical therapy, but they're not ready to return to the field of play. Yeah. I work with a lot of those athletes and so much of getting back to, to competitive play, to competitive training is not whether the structures can handle the stress. It's whether the mind is uh, comfortable and the mind knows that, hey, I can make this cut. I can, uh, I can jump off of this leg. I can, and it's so much of that is, it's literally just, uh, exposing the athlete to just a, a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's not that their tissues can't handle it. Yeah. There's a conditioning aspect there for sure. But so much of that is just mental. Like, Hey, you can do this. Your body yeah. can handle it. We just have to get you to the point where you're not thinking in the back of your mind. Yeah. Is it going to tear again when yeah. I make this cut? So and you know how, how that situation can spiral. Um, you end up thinking you can't do it anymore. You start avoiding certain movements. You start yes. avoiding other movements because you're not doing the previous ones. And then you just end up with an extremely deconditioned athlete, which, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's going to be the, the most deleterious thing for them, especially if they decide to go right back into sport Mm-hmm. Um, they go from a, a long period of not doing anything to trying to go back into doing it, even just kind of dipping your foot in your risk of injury is going to go up exponentially for sure. Yeah. You're going to compensate, you're going to shift in, and you're going to rely more heavily on the quote unquote good leg. And that's going to not be able to handle that type of stress. And, and you have two bad legs. Exactly. Exactly. That's no bueno. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of potential there and I think that could be, really helpful for athletes coming back from injury i think that would be uh that could be very powerful really I profound do too especially considering that all the uh the psychedelic stuff with the the ptsd the fear extinction that that stuff was uh microdose studies if i'm not mistaken hmm. so it's not like you need to to go and like open your third eye to be able to experience some of this stuff 
you could you could probably uh, you know take advantage of these subthreshold doses. You know, once every three days is usually what's what's shown in the literature, um, hmm. and you wouldn't even notice that you're doing it. You know, it's kind of hmm. like taking creatine. Yeah, you I'm don't feel anything. It's not the same thing. You probably need to still go <laughs> ahead and, and uh, get the the full screening done. But uh-huh. you know, as as a future therapy, I think there's a lot of promise there. Nice. So that kind of that kind of brings us to a close there on this study, man. Like I I'm so glad that we were able to to do this, and I'm so glad that uh, you know we the topic came up during the last podcast and, and otherwise, you know, I, like, I'm not, I'm not Googling psychedelics as ergogenic AIDS. Like I'm not, I just never thought to do that. And, you know, yet we still get to have this conversation. So I'm, thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, and you know, the topic is still a little bit taboo. So, uh, I appreciate you, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're talking about it, which is great. Um, yeah. That's one of the reasons why I love talking about it, man, is it's, it's not like, um, you know, like when, when fish oil first came about or like one of the new supplements comes about like probiotics and stuff like that, like mm-hmm. everyone jumps on it, you know, like yep. everyone jumps on it and then people pull back. Mm-hmm. But psychedelics are kind of one of those things where you still get a lot of kickback, right? Yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people are really, really into it, but other people are like, mm, I still wouldn't do that. And I remember when I published this paper, um, I put something up on Instagram and I asked people if they would ever try psychedelics in one of those uh, like Instagram quiz things. Mm-hmm. And then I, it was pretty split. It was like 50-50. And I asked the people that said that they wouldn't, whether it was because they were afraid of the effects or because they just were morally against them. And it was still about 50-50, hmm. which is really interesting to me um, yeah. that there's a there's that strong of a, a moral conviction that prevents you from doing it. So Yeah. As they drink their latte and yeah, imbibing all the other other uh, okay drugs, right? Exactly. Yeah, like what? Why are these okay and some not okay? And exactly, unless unless we're aware of the history of how these things became, you know, illegal and and why, uh, you know, just like the history of cannabis, like why? Well, because some guy who had a paper mill didn't. You know, didn't didn't want to change all of his machines over to hemp or whatever. Yeah, you know? Like I'm sure that's not exactly accurate, but it, it's something along those lines. He was like, probably a story that has been told. So yeah, so um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that uh, it's worth it to know the reasons why we're in the positions we are now, and not just oh well, all of these are bad, and and this is coming from a guy who's you know never never used never partaken so but i'm still very interested because i do think there are there's a lot of potential yeah i would totally agree with you and i'm i'm very thankful for your uh open-mindedness on the on the subject i think that not too many other people uh would would share that open-mindedness so i appreciate you for for having me on and Listen sure, to talk about. It's a fun topic. It's a really fun topic. And like I said, I'm not anywhere near an expert on the topic. Um, I do exercise science research. I don't. I don't run a lab where people are taking magic mushroom tea. So. <laughs> no, yet. But, but maybe. Would. Yes. Yes. For those watching and listening, let's make it yeah. happen. 
it sounds so much more fun than those labs that do alcohol research. That just sounds so lame, you know? Just like, hey, let's let's go to the lab. I'll be all by myself drinking mm-hmm. vodka until I pass out. That sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. No. Yeah, I'll pass on that. I don't want to study that. I don't want to be a subject in that study. No. I wouldn't mind watching a couple of <laughs> subjects just to see just to see what it's like. Yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting, probably. Yeah. Probably not at Baylor though. No, definitely not at Baylor. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, by the way, I showed you earlier, but for those who are watching, I've I got my Baylor shirt on and I didn't even realize it uh, this morning when I was getting ready for work in the dark at four thirty. I put another Baylor shirt on underneath, so I'm just, you know, it's repping destined the, to be. Repping the Bears hardcore today. So yeah, sick of You have more more pride than I do, apparently. I could have <laughs> worn a Baylor shirt and decided to wear a, a Star Wars shirt instead. So Hey. <laughs> Imperial strength. Yeah, Imperial Strength and then it says uh Conquering Barbell down there. It's it's a it's a fitness brand, so Love it, man. Yeah, dude. So uh, so that people can stay, you know, in touch with you if they have questions, or so that we that they can continue to follow the stuff that you're publishing, which is extremely interesting. Uh, how can people follow you? Yeah. Uh, well, number one, email is a good way if you have any questions or anything like that. So that's just my name, Stephen with a V underscore Maychek M A C H E K. The number two, people always forget that part. Uh, at Baylor.edu. Um, in terms of social media, if you want to read my research, ResearchGate is the main one. If you just Google my name on ResearchGate, it'll come up. If it's not already available, all you have to do is click Request Full Text, and I usually get the full text back to people within, gosh, less than 12 hours, um, as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And then uh, other than that, uh, you know, I have a, I have social media, which is uh, just, uh, I mean, I have a Facebook, but most of the content scientifically related goes up on Instagram. My Instagram is stretch underscore RX. Um, I don't know if I talked about the history of that, but that's that's okay. <laughs> uh, just don't worry about it. Um, but I, I post research-related things. I post uh, life-related things. Like my wife's about to have a baby, and like, gosh, she's 37 weeks right now. So wow, less very than, soon. Yeah, very soon. So definitely going to be a massive influx of baby pictures. Nice, awesome. Yeah, sweet. Well. Thank you again for taking the time to do this. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, can't wait to uh, have you on again in the future to discuss more awesome topics, man. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. For sure. Alrighty, y'all. Thanks for watching and listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. Adios.